certainly hope that everyone is having a wonderful morning and uh, looking forward to a great week. We're thankful that we can assemble today and to worship as always. Those of you who are visiting, let me just say again that we're so thankful that you're here and we certainly hope that you find a warm welcome here. And I'll also say that if there's something that we can do some way that we can serve you or help you or maybe tell you a little bit more about the church here and who we are and what we do, then I want you to know that we would be happy to do that. Please just let us know. Also, before we begin our lesson, one more announcement. Um, remember that today, the uh, kindergarten through second graders uh, Bible Bowl practice, this is a practice that will happen only one time a month. So the monthly Bible Bowl practice for kindergarten through second grade that's going to happen today at 5.15, and parents are asked, please, to stay for that practice and be with the kids. So that's kindergarten through second grade Bible Bowl practice today at 5.15. The Bible tells us about a man named Job, and the Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man, that he was blameless, and that he did that which was right and good in the sight of God. If you know anything about the story of Job, then you know that he endured a trial that was far greater than what most of us, maybe all of us, could ever really begin even to contemplate. And as Job was working through all of that and trying to make sense of it, in Job chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, Job asked for what essentially is an umpire. The word in the New King James Version is mediator. Your Bible, if you have the King James Version, might say daysman, but the literal meaning is an umpire. He was looking for someone who could call balls and strikes, as it were, between him and God, someone to stand between him and God, so that he could plead his case and try in some way to, to understand what was going on. I'll tell on myself a little bit. When I was growing up, I was very competitive. I've learned over the years to bring that down a notch or ten. But I played baseball for about 15 years, and if you went back where I grew up and asked anybody that remembers, they would tell you I didn't have a very good relationship with umpires because they were always wrong, you know. That was just it. But as I've gotten older, I have learned, as you, I'm sure, that spiritually speaking, having an umpire is a blessing and an absolute necessity. This call for, of Job's, this desire to have someone between him and God would be in the law of Moses. It would be fulfilled in the person of the high priest, Exodus chapter 28, the Bible tells us that God called Aaron and his sons and their descendants after them to serve in this role as the priesthood and as the high priest, and their job was to act as mediators. They were go-betweens between the people and between God, and the people would come to the priest. They would bring their sacrifices. They would come before them if they had various diseases and whatever their spiritual needs happened to be, it was the priesthood that would help to meet those needs and that would help to act as a mediator between them and between their God. 
But now in the New Testament, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. He is our go-between between God and between us, man. And not only that, but according to Hebrews chapter 5, and really the main idea of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is not only our mediator, he is our high priest. If you remember the ending of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verse 14, 15, and 16, we are told that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and because we have that great high priest, the Hebrews writer says, let us hold fast our confession, or let us remain faithful. And the reason is that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather we do. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ who knows exactly what it's like to be in the flesh and to suffer and to be tempted and to experience pain and disappointment and all of the things that come with being a human. He knows what that's like, and so he can sympathize with our weaknesses. In fact, he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, and so let us come boldly before the throne of grace so that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 5 this morning and we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. But it's important to be familiar with chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 because this passage is directly connected to it. We do have a high priest, a true high priest in Jesus Christ he is sufficient for our needs, and so therefore we can and must continue to draw near in full assurance of faith. But what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? How exactly is it that he is qualified to be our high priest, and why do we need a high priest anyway? Those are the questions that are addressed in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. I want you to notice with me this morning that these 10 verses are divided into only two sections, verse 1 to 4 and verse 5 to 10. First of all, in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 5, the writer will discuss the role, the responsibilities, and the qualifications of the high priest under the law of Moses. First, notice his responsibilities. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, the Hebrews writer says, For every high priest is taken from among men and appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. I want you to look at the latter part of that verse. Notice the writer says that the high priest is appointed. And the word appointed literally means that he is appointed to administer an office. So what's the office that he's appointed to administer? The answer is the office that represents man before his God. You see, the high priest literally is responsible, according to Hebrews 5.1, for mediating between God and between man. He is man's representation. But second, look at the last part of the verse. He is appointed for men in things pertaining to God so that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The implication being, it's the high priest who offers the gifts and the sacrifices for sin on the part of the people whom he represents. 
The word gift likely refers to the various meal offerings that were offered under the law of Moses, but the word sacrifices refers to the blood offerings, the bulls and the goats and the animals that were slain, the blood that was shed as a sacrifice in order to deal with their sin. I want to encourage you to write down next to this verse and in your notes, Leviticus chapter 16. We'll talk about this chapter more than once during our study this morning, and here's the reason why. Number one, Leviticus chapter 16 is all about the Day of Atonement, and it was the most important day of the calendar, uh, on the calendar for the Jew living under the Old Testament law. That's because it was on this day, as you recall, that the high priest would step down as a man among men. He would offer sin and sacrifice for himself and for his own sins, and then he would offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. On that day, the Day of Atonement, the sin of the people would be dealt with. This happened over and over again, year in and year out. Well, as the Hebrews writer discusses the role of the high priest, not only in Hebrews 5, but throughout the remainder of this book on through chapter 10, He has the day of atonement in mind. And the actions that the high priest would take on the day of atonement every year as recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 16 in dealing with the sins of the people and so on, those are the things that he has in his mind. So what are the responsibilities of the high priest? What are the responsibilities of the one who stands between God and man? Number one, he acts as their mediator. And number two, he deals with their sin, or at least helps them to do it. I want you to keep those things in mind as we revisit them in the latter part of our study. Now, second, let's look at the qualifications of the high priest. There are three. Number one, the high priest had to be selected from among men. Look again at verse number one. For every high priest, he says, is taken from among men. What do you mean? What does it mean that they're taken from among men? Well, the idea here is that in order for the high priest to be able to act as a mediator for or on the behalf of man, he had to be what? A man. In order for the high priest to be able to help to mediate in things pertaining to God on behalf of the people of Israel, he had to be a person of Israel. He had to know what it was like to be an Israelite. He had to know what it was like to be tempted. He had to know what it was like to deal with heartache. He had to know what it was like to struggle. It's all about oneness with the people. He had to be one of them so that he could know them and understand them. Qualification number one, he is selected from among men. Number two, he had to show compassion. Look at verse two. The reason why he is taken from among men and appointed, verse one, for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, is so that he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. I want you to notice with me the word compassion. It's an interesting word in the original text. It's a compound word, and it means literally the ability to take a balanced course. The ability to take a balanced course. And you might be wondering, well, the balance of what? And and the answer is... It's the balance between anger and apathy. 
It is a word that indicates that the high priest had to have the ability to find to that perfect balance, that perfect mark between becoming angry with the people who came before him hundreds, maybe thousands, every day after day after day and then just simply not caring, allowing himself to become so numb to it all that it didn't affect him in the least bit. He had to be compassionate. He had to have the ability to look at the people that came before him and try to relate to them and try to understand what it was that they were dealing with and then be able to react in an appropriate manner. But notice that the Hebrews writer adds something to it. He says that he was to have compassion on those who were ignorant and going astray. You see, the high priest had to have the ability to thoughtfully distinguish between kinds of sin and appropriate sacrifice. If you go back in your Old Testaments and you read Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 32, all the way through verse number 31, here's what you're going to find. First, that there were sins that were characterized as being sins of ignorance. A person's sin may be unintentionally. A person's sin, perhaps, because they didn't have knowledge, and so they just didn't know that that's what they were doing. Whatever the case may be, these were classified as sins of ignorance under the old law, and there were certain sacrifices, certain ways in which those sins were to be dealt with. But then second, if you read that context, Numbers 15, you'll also find that there were sins that were classified as high-handed sins. In other words... This is a person who in his pride intentionally sinned. He waved his fist before God, if you will. And for those kinds of intentional sins of over-rebellion, there were no sacrifices to be made, but that was to cost that person his life. Just a moment here to step away from this context. If you write down in your Bibles or in your notes, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Notice that the Hebrews writer is warning these Christians against those very kinds of sins. Now back to the text of Hebrews 5. The second qualification of the high priest was that he had to be compassionate. He had to be a man of understanding. When someone who had committed a sin came before him to offer sacrifice, he couldn't look at them and say, You again? Why are you here? Don't you ever learn? He couldn't look at them and become he couldn't look at them and become so angry that he refused to help them or was handicapped in his ability to help them. But at the same time, he couldn't become numb to it. He couldn't just not care and shrug his shoulders and wave them off and say, whatever, it doesn't matter. Instead, over and over again, for every person that came before him seeking help spiritually, he had to have the ability to have compassion and to identify with them. But look at verse 3, excuse me, the end of verse 2. You see, um, the priest, the priest is required to make sin for the people on a regular basis according to verse number 3. But what's the basis of his, of his compassion according to verse number 2 and the end of verse number 3? It's himself. You see, the reason why he's able to, or should rather have compassion on the folks that come before him is because 
Every time he looks into the face of an Israelite who needs to make sacrifice for sin, it's as if he's looking into a mirror and looking at himself. The Hebrews writer describes the weakness of the high priest. He says at the end of verse number two, he himself is also subject to weakness. And the meaning is he's frail. He's, he's morally frail. It's just, as likely, it's just as likely that he would be the one coming to the high priest seeking help to deal with his sin over and over again as the ones coming before him. It's just as likely that he's going to be judged for his own sin and he's going to need cleansing for his sin just like anyone else. Remember Aaron, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 to 6. Moses is in the mountain receiving the law and the people come to Aaron and what did they say? Make us a calf. Make us a God like the ones that we had in Egypt because Moses has forsaken us and Aaron did it. And yet Aaron is the one who later on will be chosen by God to serve as the high priest. What does that tell me? That tells me that Aaron was a human being just like me and you and everybody else. And it reminds me again of the importance of Leviticus 9 verse 7 and Leviticus 16 verse 6 to 14 and the fact that on the day of atonement before the high priest could say anything or do anything for anybody else he had to first deal with himself and with his own sins. He had to know his own frailty and his own limitations as a human being. The high priest had to be compassionate. Number three, the high priest had to be appointed by God. Look at verse 4. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. The responsibility of serving in the priesthood, and particularly of being the high priest under the old law, was a weighty responsibility, to be sure. No wonder the Hebrews writer calls it an honor. And he says that, look, it wasn't a job that you could try out for. You couldn't submit your resume online so that God could go through them and find the most qualified person. That's not how it worked. If you were going to be the priest, if you were going to be the high priest, well, that's because God was going to choose you and select you for that service. The qualifications of the high priest. He had to be taken from among men. He had to be one with them so that he could relate to them. He had to be compassionate. He had to exercise compassion and good judgment and he had to be chosen by God. Now, as we turn our attention to verse 5 through 10 and Christ, what the writer is going to do is he is going to go through this exact same list in reverse order, and he's going to show us how all of those things apply to Jesus Christ. First, look at verse 5 and 6. He tells us that Christ was appointed by God. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, verse 5, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus did not thrust himself into the office of the high priesthood. And in fact, if Jesus were to be a high priest under the Mosaic law, Jesus would have, to have, uh, would have to have been a descendant of Aaron and of the tribe of Levi, but he was not. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And nevertheless, he was no intruder into the office of the priesthood. How do we know that? 
The Hebrews writer quotes two Old Testament passages, one in verse 5 and one in verse 6, to make his point. First, a passage of authority. That's verse 5, quoted from Psalm 2 and verse 7. And the passage of authority simply says, God qualified him. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. Because Jesus is the Son of God, the idea then is Jesus' sonship qualifies him to serve as high priest. In fact, the writer quotes this same passage back in chapter 1 and verse 5 in order to establish his sonship, and yet here he is establishing his Messiahship. It's a passage of authority. Second, look at verse 6. It's a passage of office. It's a quotation of Psalm 110 and verse 4. And in this case, what the Hebrews writer is telling us is that the Son of God, our Messiah, the Anointed One, He has the authority to serve as high priest, but He is serving as high priest of a different kind, a different order. He's not serving as a high priest in the way that Aaron did. Rather, He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Another passage referenced in chapter 1, verse number 13 this time, in reference to his superiority over the angels. But now what the Hebrews writer wants us to know is that Jesus, as our compassionate and sympathetic high priest, chapter 4, verse 14, 15, and 16, has the authority to fulfill that role, verse number 5, and fulfills that role after a different order, verse number 6, not because he thrust himself or chose it for himself, but because, but because God glorified him. God exalted him and God put him in that role. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Not only does he meet the qualification of being selected by God, but he also meets the qualification of being able to show compassion. He tells us about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience Excuse me, by the things which he suffered. Back in chapter 2 and verse 14, we had an explanation of Jesus having been made a little lower than the angels for a short period of time. The word became flesh according to John chapter 1 and verse number 14. And in Hebrews chapter 2, after having explained to us that Jesus is greater than the angels in chapter 1, the writer takes a few moments to explain that for a temporary amount of time, he became lower than the angels, talking about the word becoming flesh, how God became man. He was man and God at the same time as the teaching of Scripture. But the reason why, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is so that he could taste death for every man and so that he could deliver us who for a long time were enslaved unto death and unto sin. He could deliver us from the fear of death and from the bondage and slavery that we had to it. What kind of experience did Jesus have in his flesh? The Hebrews writer in Hebrews 5 verse 7 and 8 is unquestionably referring back to the grief of our Lord back in the garden you can read about it in the gospel accounts. Jesus crying, Jesus praying. And in fact, this passage gives more information than what the gospel accounts do. The passage tells us that, that Jesus offered up vehement crying and tears. And the language that is used indicates the screams and yells of someone who is crying out for help. 
And yet as we see Jesus crying out for help in the garden, we also see him crying out and saying what? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the writer again is bringing to our attention the fact that Jesus knows what it's like to be a human. Jesus knows what it's like to experience grief. Jesus knows what it's like to experience pain. And yet in all of his grief and in all of his suffering, verse number 8, what was his frame of mind? Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Jesus is able to serve as our great high priest because he meets the qualification of compassion. He can be compassionate toward us because he knows what it's like to be us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. And he learned through his suffering how to be a faithful and merciful high priest. The high priest had to be taken from among men so that he could be one with them. Jesus became man. The high priest had to be compassionate. Jesus is able to show compassion. The high priest had to be uh, selected by God. Jesus was glorified into the office of the high priesthood by God. And now look at verse 9 and 10. Because of all of that, the Hebrews writer will tell us that he has been made the perfect high priest for his people. He says, and having been perfected, and the word perfected has to do with being qualified. The writer will mention that several times in the book. Having been perfected or having been made qualified, he became the author of eternal salvation. And the word author indicates the cause. In other words, it's not like an author where he sat down and wrote the story or wrote the book. The idea is he brought it into being. He brought it into existence. How did he bring our salvation into being? How did he bring our salvation into existence? Well, it is because, according to what we've read in these previous passages, that he met the qualifications. He became perfect through his suffering. And so now he is called, uh, he is called by God a high priest, and he works and he serves in that office for all of those who obey and who follow him faithfully. Now you may be wondering as we get to the end of this context how all of this makes application to us. It's good for us to know about Christ, but how, what does it mean? I want you to stop for just a moment and I want you to think about the role again that the high priest played under the Old Testament law. If you go back to the end of the book of Exodus, what you'll read is that after having created the garments of the priesthood and having constructed the tabernacle and all of its furniture, the glory of the Lord is there in the tabernacle, the tent, the presence of God is there inside the tent. Where was Moses? He's outside the tent. And then the book of Leviticus begins and it tells us all about the various sacrifices and the various offerings. It tells us about the day of atonement and the role of the high priest. And here is the point, here is the lesson that Moses had to stand outside of that tent because only holiness can approach into the presence of God. And the role of the high priest was then part of God teaching unholy man how they could approach 
unto a holy God, how they could be granted entrance inside that tabernacle, inside that tent, so that they then could stand in the presence of God. So that being the case, whenever I read about and think about Christ being the high priest, there are at least three things that should come to my mind. Number one, I ought to thank God that I have someone who is an umpire. We have one mediator between God and man, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is described as our advocate, literally our defense attorney. We have one in the heavens who pleads our case on a regular basis before the throne of God. He is on our side. He knows what it's like to stand in our shoes, and he cares for us infinitely. Number two, though, when we think about Jesus being our high priest, it ought to drive our minds directly to the cross and help us to appreciate more the suffering and the sacrifice that had to be undertaken in order for him to fulfill that role. You see, according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 25, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. But then according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and following, the scripture says Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Me all by myself on my own? I have no way of dealing with my own unholiness. I have no way of dealing with my own sin. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and following say that God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together again with Christ. By grace are you saved. The fact that Christ is able to serve as my high priest and mediator between me and God means that Christ had to suffer at the, on the cross, that he had to shed his blood so that my sins could be washed away, that I might be made holy through his blood so that I can have access to the throne room of God, according to Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, at any time with boldness and without hesitation. It ought to drive me to the cross. Number three, and finally, it ought to impress upon me greatly the need to obey my high priest. Those living under the old law, they had a high priest who served for them in things pertaining to God. If they wanted to know what needed to be done in order to be right with God, they went to the high priest and imagine what would happen if they asked the high priest what to do and he told them and they turned away and didn't do it kind of boggles the mind to consider such a thing. What does the Hebrews writer tell us about Jesus in Hebrews 5, verse 9? That he has become the author of eternal salvation to all who what? All who obey him. It is even more incomprehensible to me than thinking of a Jew or an Israelite under the law of Moses ignoring the directions of the high priest to think of one 
who would come to the superior high priest, Jesus the Christ, listen to him explain what needs to be done and then turn away in calculated indifference or, God forbid, even rebellion. And yet, sadly, there are so many people all over this world who do exactly that on a daily basis. What about you? What about me? Do you come to your high priest in obedience to receive the blessings that he has to bestow? Or do you turn away from him? Say, I'd rather do it my way. I don't like what it is that you have to say. I want to do it the way I want to do it. Which is it for you? This morning, the Lord's invitation is extended. And to those who long to obey the high priest, what the Bible teaches is that we have to believe in him. John chapter 3 and 16. But not only that, we have to obey him. We have to repent of our sins, Acts 3 and verse 19. We have to confess our faith, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. And we have to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said in himself in Mark 16 and verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who doesn't believe shall be condemned. But that's not the end of it. Because once we obey the gospel, once we make that step, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, what the Bible tells us is that we have to do what these Hebrew Christians seemingly aren't wanting to do. And that is that we have to stay faithful. There remains, therefore, a rest, the Hebrews writer says, for the people of God who remain faithful in his service. This morning, do you stand right in the sight of God? If not, why not? We have an opportunity now before us to make that right. And if we can help you, it would be our privilege. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song together. Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you again tonight. This is the fifth Sunday night, and so it is our question and answer time. Um, this time I've enlisted uh, Brother Matt to help, and so I have a few questions to answer and a couple of questions from some of the kids as well, and then Matt has a couple of questions. I gave him the hard ones, so we'll let him go second. Also, I failed to mention this this morning, um, and so I wanted to be sure and say it tonight uh, so as to not let another week go by, but we're in the process of drafting the, the lessons and putting the program together for Arise for next year. The theme is Arise and Evangelize, and some of you have already, several months ago, submitted some suggestions on topics and passages and questions and things like that. And um, I want to encourage you, if, if you have an idea, something that you would like to be discussed at Arise, then please... Uh, write that down and give it to me or you can put it in the box uh, there on the table here in the back and try to get that done in the next week or so because we're trying to get all of that together and get it finalized. I can't promise you that your idea will be used because there are a lot, but I can promise you that it will certainly be uh, certainly be considered. So again, we just we want to we want to find every way possible for the congregation to be involved in this, in this event. And 
this seems to me to be a very good way to do it. All right, so let's get to our questions. First, look with me in the book of Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 18 and verse 18 in just a minute. Acts 18 and verse 18. And the question is, was it Paul or was it Aquila who uh, had taken a vow? I have to admit to you that I didn't know that there was any sort of question about this, whether it was Paul or Aquila, until this question was considered and I looked into it a little bit. Well, let's read the verse and then a couple of comments. Acts 18.18 18 says, So Paul still remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had cut his hair off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus, and he left, it, left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And we'll stop right there. Now, I'm going to tell you that I believe this is talking about the Apostle Paul and feel fairly strongly about that. The only argument that I have come across that would argue for Aquila would be that, well, the nearest, uh, the nearest noun, the antecedent, would be in reference to Aquila. But the problem with that, I think, is that if you look at the whole context, verse 18 and following, the whole thing is about the Apostle Paul, and Aquila and Priscilla are just mentioned sort of as a side note. And then in verse 19... When it says he came to Ephesus, what comes right after uh, having his hair cut off at Sincrea because of his vow, there's no question that that's talking about the Apostle Paul. So it would seem to me that there's really no reason to doubt that the one who took the vow is Paul. Another interesting question would be what was the vow and why did he take it? And we can't say that for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us. A lot of folks have said that's probably a Nazarite vow, and it may well have been, but if it were a Nazarite vow, then it would have been some sort of, a, of an abbreviated Nazarite vow or, or, or in some way changed because it doesn't match what the law of Moses sets forth as what the Nazarite vow was all about. But that wasn't the question that was asked. So the question is, was it Paul or Aquila? And the answer is, it was Paul. Here's the second question. This is an interesting question, and I'm going to admit to you that it's a little bit difficult for me to answer. The question is, in regard to hospitality, how should we treat the homeless and the folks who are begging and asking for things on the street? I think that's a great question. The Bible tells us in a number of passages that we have a responsibility to practice hospitality. For example, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, in verse 12 and following, he's talking about genuine love. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Literally, let love be genuine. And you'll notice that in the verses that follow that, there are a number of, of short, almost uh, staccato-like commands. Uh, let love be genuine. And he'll say, love is brethren, and uh, don't be given to uh, envy or vengeance. And then in this list, he'll say, be given to hospitality. Well, the interesting thing is that all of those short little sentences that follow after let love be genuine or without hypocrisy, they define what he means when he says let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. And one of the things in that list is being given to or, 
or uh, having the propensity to be hospitable. But we also have other passages in the Bible that give us some instruction in regard to our responsibility in general to the poor. Like under the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22 and following, the Bible tells us that the children of Israel, whenever they would reap their harvest, they were responsible to leave the corners of their fields. Don't, don't reap the corner of the field, but leave them. And the reason is because that was provision for the poor. They were to be able to go and to, to get what they needed that way. In Psalm 41 and verse 1, the psalmist said, Blessed is he that considers the poor. And then in the New Testament, we have a verse like Galatians 6 verse 10. As you therefore have opportunity, do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. That passage, Galatians 6.10, is not just talking about serving people in a spiritual way. It's talking about doing good to people and, and serving them in a physical way also. And then, of course, the passage that immediately comes to my mind every time a question like this arises is Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and following. You remember that this is the judgment scene. And the scripture tells us that as all nations come before Christ, that he'll separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, that he'll set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And we'll stop there. So there's no question that when we look at this context, what Jesus is identifying, we'll use the term, we'll use the term benevolence or benevolent, being benevolent, seeking to help meet the physical needs of those who are poor and less fortunate. And there is no question that Jesus is connecting that with the judgment day. So all of that in mind, back to the question, in regard to hospitality, how should we treat those who are homeless? How should we treat those who are poor? Well, first of all, we should always treat them with respect and kindness because that is... That is something that applies to anyone in every situation. We should always behave in a Christ-like manner. Now, my answer to how we should treat them regarding hospitality is that we need to try and use the best judgment that we can. You see, I think there's also the principle of stewardship that has to be applied to all of this. There's, there is no question that we need to be people who are trying to help serve and meet the physical needs of others. And listen, I, it has been my contention for a long time, I've said it many times here from behind the pulpit, that as a whole, the church, I think, probably should put more emphasis in being benevolent. I think that that's biblical, that we should 
emphasize that more. But of course, every one of us recognizes that there are some people who are um, in need because they choose to be that way. And there are some people that you know that if you give them money or if you help them, they're going to go use that. They're going to waste it. They're going to use it on something that's ungodly. I remember when I was living in Oklahoma, there was a gentleman that called the church building and he wanted to meet with us, and so we did. And he gave us this long story about how he had come from Florida and how he, you know, didn't have anything to eat and, you know, all of this. And the guy that I worked with kept Subway gift cards in his desk. And uh, he went and he got some. And before he told the guy what it was, he asked him, you know, after he had told us how hungry he was, if he liked Subway. And he said, no, not really. Well, he didn't get a Subway gift card, but what he didn't realize is that had he not said that, he would have left and, you know, he would have, he would have been able to go to Subway and get something to eat. Sometimes there has to be judgment exercised in these matters. And I'll be honest, I don't know the right answer to the question. I don't know I don't know what to say to give an absolute point-by-point -point test by which you could put every, run every situation and every person who asks for help. I just don't know that. But what I do know is that we do need to be helpful. And I do know that we, we need to look for opportunities and look for people who genuinely are in need and do what we can to meet those needs. I hope that uh, helps in some way. Here's a couple of questions from some of our kids, and then I'll turn it over to Matt. First question, how can there be fire in hell when it's dark there? That's a really good question, and again, I'm not sure that I can answer that question other than just saying that remember that hell is a, is a spiritual place just like heaven is a spiritual place, and uh, that's just what the Bible says. And I don't ever want to have to go there to try and find out. But it's a good question. Here's another question. How did God make people? Well, the Bible tells us exactly how God made people. If you go back and look at your Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God made man. He created man in his own image. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So how did God make man? Well, he made man. He made our bodies from the dust, from the, the, the earth, from the dirt of the ground, if you will. He made us in his image. And he made us in his likeness. And uh, we should be thankful that God made us in the way that he did. I did not know what questions Cody had. He definitely had the easy ones. I know why he made me go second, too. That way I'm the bad guy when we go overtime, like midnight or something. Yeah, that, that boy's smarter than he looks, I promise you. <laughs> it is good to be here uh, this evening, and uh, am I supposed to do some up here to make it? Uh, you said turn the pointer? Oh, and it'll happen? Okay. See, I told you he was smart. 
first question that I have is, what does it mean they were separated by their languages or tongues? Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10, please. Genesis chapter 10. Can't answer the question. Next. No, I'm just kidding. Whew, got out of that one. No. Follow with me. Let's, let's look at several verses here. In Genesis 10 and verse 5. Now, by the way, I added this verse to the verses that were given in this question, just so you know. It says, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families and their nations. Now look at verse 20 in Genesis 10. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues. Now go to verse 31, Genesis 10 and verse 31. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues. You see the running theme there that uh, we are establishing. Now having read those verses, go over to Genesis chapter 11. Oh, there we go. It appeared. All right. Thank you, sir. And in verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Let me repeat the twofold question here. What does it mean they were separated by their languages or tongues? How can this be if they were separated by clans, languages, lands, and nations? When we go into Bible study, sometimes people think this is a book like any other book and you open it and you read it from beginning to end and it's all supposed to flow and, and make sense in one event after another. Well, part of the Bible or some of the Bible is written in chronological order, but not all of the Bible at all times is in chronological order. Why the scriptures do that way or write in that manner chronologically beginning to end one thing about chronological order is you can go from one verse to the next and it can cover a few days to hundreds of years in time. And with continued study and digging deeper for the scripture and, and good brethren to, to help us, we can identify those things. Another aspect of chronological or dealing with time in the Bible when you're reading something, sometimes you have a reader, Isaiah is a perfect example of this, where he is seeing or being given events that are going to happen in the future, but in his writing, he's describing them as happening today or in his time. The fancy word is called prophetic perfect. Ask the second-year students. They should know that. If not, they will know it here in a few weeks, uh, uh, for sure, on paper. And so you have that to deal with when you're dealing with the time issue in the Bible. In addition to that, you have when a writer will approach a subject more from a topical standpoint, not so much concerned with the chronological order of things, but with a topic that the writer is wanting to deal with. Now, if that's not enough, sometimes a writer can have both of those in any given book of the Bible. So you take all that information, if someone doesn't realize this, you can see how easily it could become confusing to someone. Returning back then to Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11, as far as numbers go, yes, Genesis 10 and verse 5 and the following comes before Genesis 11.1 1 in our Bibles. 
Genesis 11:1, referring to a later time. It was not uncommon, matter of fact, it was very common for Jewish genealogies to skip one or even several generations. If you've read through Chronicles or other Old Testament books, you think, what is the purpose of all these names? Well, they were significant in Jewish history and why they were given. But again, they might skip a generation or two. The context of Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 is a few generations after Noah and his sons. But Genesis 10 and verse 5, 20, 31, those that we look at, appears to reach many generations later after the events at Babel. One thing about these two things, neither one or neither account gives a definite number of years in the details and what it is giving. I hope that satisfies whomever has asked that question. If not, go see Brother Cody. He'll finish it up for me. We're increasing in intensity here. The next question, Old Testament, New Testament transition. This is an area that in evangelizing you need to, you get to deal with, and people are going to have questions about it. As a matter of fact, uh, I think it was the first year. It might have been the second year. It all runs together a little bit. We were discussing the other day the time frame of John the baptizer and what he was preaching and his baptism and Jesus' baptism. This is similar to that. Here is the question. Cody has it up there for us. Was there a grace period between the time of Jesus' death and the destruction of Jerusalem for the Jews to completely abandon the old law? I'm going to spend a few minutes answering that, and then once I do that, we'll come back to, would such a grace period explain why James and the elders in Jerusalem advised Paul to take a Nazarite vow. I copied it word for word, I believe, in how the question was given to me. So let's deal first of all with this transitional period from Old Testament to New Testament. The commencement, the beginning, the starting of the New Testament begins with what might be described as a transitional period. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll add some more complexity to this question. The liberal element in the religious world, the liberal element even in the Lord's Church I've seen, where they take the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and try to teach that they are not New Testament. And the reason they do that is because of some of the things that Jesus taught, a.k.a. marriage, divorce, and remarriage, although he's right in line with the Apostle Paul, so who knows what they're getting at there, and they try to uh, remove that. In this time, instruction was first given by John the Baptizer. True? Jesus came on scene, and he was giving instruction, and they were both preaching the same message. This would accommodate a seamless transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, going from the mosaical to that of the kingdom of Christ. Now, brethren, think for just a moment the challenges that these people had to face. It's not an excuse for them, but the challenge is because they have the Bible. Literally for thousands of years, they have been under the mosaical system. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Then you have the religious authorities of that day who have taken the law of Moses and have mixed it with their traditions and their customs and really forcefully to the degree of binding it on the people. And so someone's having to deal with that. And then you have, well, what about the messianic prophecies, Matt? That is true. But the understanding of the Bible and seeing that come to fruition, hindsight, they say, is what, 2020? We look back and see it all. 
they're being told, look, this is what is coming. So while it does not excuse them, they are working through all of these challenges. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. Hey, you have a screen right here. I don't have to look up there. Man, I'm learning all kinds of stuff tonight. It says in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. From that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. We could say that John's ministry, John's work, he was the preparer, was the bridge between the Old Testament and the beginning reign of Christ. And though the law of Moses was still operative, in effect until the death of Christ, some of its civil aspects continued until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jesus, nonetheless, in the greatest sermon that we've ever read and has ever been preached and seen, and we, we learn from continuously, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, has many kingdom principles. But obviously he's living as he's preaching that lesson. Now, what then are we to say? When did the law, O oh law, end? When did the new one begin? What did these people do? Well, Paul clearly teaches that through the death of Christ, so that would be on the cross, correct? That the Jews had become dead to the law. Where he brings us out is in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Romans 7, 1, 2, 3, 1 through 4. There we go. Romans. Now, we go there a lot to discuss the laws concerning marriage between husband and wife. Nothing wrong with that. But the real focus there of what Paul, maybe two birds with one stone, is he's teaching what I've just said, the abolition of or the doing away with of the law so that the Jews were dead to the law. And the illustration he uses is that of marriage. Just as a woman is free to remarry when her husband dies, his argument is the Jews were free to be joined to Christ. Why? Because the old law was no longer in effect. They were, as verse 6 says, and some versions say, were discharged from it. Paul also depicts the old law, the Mosaical law, Galatians 3, 24 and 25, as a tutor. Now, the way I heard it described a long time ago by an old-timer was the old law was like the school bus driver. We think of a tutor helping someone in a particular subject. It would help us to think of it as a bus driver. A bus driver what? Picks up the children and delivers them to the school building. Once the bus driver has done that, they're done with the responsibility. They're done for the day as far as a bus driver is concerned. Well, the old law, not comparing it to a bus driver, but what I'm saying is brought us to where we needed to be, and then it was done away. They were no longer under this law or under a tutor. Now, when Paul mentions this in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, this is possibly some 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem. So if you're following, me, uh, following along with me, I'm confusing it a little bit on purpose, not to create more difficulty, but trying to make sense of, or how do we make sense of all this? Jesus abolished the law of commandments, how? No doubt, unquestionable, by the death, his flesh, the shedding of his blood when he died on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and following clearly teach that. Easy to understand. Now, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Look what Paul declares there, and as you're doing this, 
Notice the past tense. First-year students are going through grammar right now, and they're kind of like, here's where this plays an important part. The past tense form of the verbs in Colossians 2 and verse 14, the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, Christ has taken out of the way, how? By nailing it to the cross. Reaffirming using different scriptures what we're discussing regarding this abolishment of the old law. Now, having said all that, when you go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 and verse 12, there the writer says that there is a change of priesthood, and because there is a change of priesthood, there is a necessity and a change of the law. However, when the letter of first peter was written christians were already designated as holy priesthood or as a royal priesthood the former priesthood the levitical one under the old law had been replaced by a spiritual priesthood it is almost universally recognized by those who study dates in the bible that first peter was written in 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 the 60s a lot of them put it right about a.d. 64 That's several several years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So what is the point? The Levitical priesthood as well as the law were divinely terminated already, and you had that spiritual priesthood in place. If the Jews are still under the law of Moses between the cross, when the law was abolished, and A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, then there's likely a priesthood that would have to exist continuing animal sacrifices, the blood of animals, for redemptive purposes, even after Jesus had already sacrificed himself for them. Brethren, that makes no sense whatsoever. Just does not follow. That's not what the Bible teaches. All right, so we've cleared that, right? Some of you don't look so clear there. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get through it. Now let's consider the present tense. If the law of Moses was abolished at the death of Christ, A.D. 30 approximately, give or take, why does Paul suggest, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. If the law of Moses was abolished at the death of Christ, why does Paul suggest in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, now this is some 26, 27 years after the death of Christ, that it was passing away. For those that love grammar, this is a present tense participle. You're like, you lost me, preacher. That's okay. Just understand this is what's going on here. Because of this, there are two possible explanations or reasonable uh, things to draw from this. The context indicates that Paul is drawing a contrast between the fading glory, that which was passing away of the first covenant, and the permanent glory, that of the new covenant. Chapter, uh, verse 6 and verse 14 bring that terminology out. So this being the case, consider this. The redemptive element of the Mosaical law, the redemptive element, the animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood was done away with at the cross, Jesus' death on the cross. The civil aspect regarding the law of Moses continued until about A.D. 70. That is when the entire totality of the complete Hebrew system was removed by God Almighty. You see, brother, when we're studying the Bible, one thing we have to recognize is that the Jewish people have to lose their national identity for the church to be planted and to spread like a wildfire, just as the Bible teaches. 
That happens with the destruction of Jerusalem. The system as a whole was incrementally removed. The second aspect is the influence of the gospel of Christ gets into the hearts and minds of people. It spreads and it takes time as that spreading uh, goes forth from the land. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it begins in Jerusalem and it ends up in the uttermost parts of the earth. All right, now going back to our second question. Would such a grace period explain why James and the elders in Jerusalem advised Paul to take a Nazarite vow? Turning your Bibles to Acts 21. It would be unfair for me to attempt in answering this question without first getting the background of what is taking place or what is going on. This is at the end or the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul and his friends that are with him, they return to Jerusalem. This is the fifth time that Paul returns to Jerusalem. By the way, it's the final time that he returns to Jerusalem. And he's visiting the city here. And he's going to meet with the brethren. So let's begin in Acts 20. Let's pick up in verse 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So they've been traveling, they're back, a reunion's taking place, and he says, let me tell you what happened. As a matter of fact, Paul had asked the brethren to pray for this. That's exactly what happened, and they're all rejoicing over the fact that much good has been done. In verse 20, when they heard, they glorified the Lord and said, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Did you catch that terminology? Thousands of Jews have believed, but they're zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, verse 21, that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together. They will hear that you have come. Paul, we've got a problem. You have all these Jews. They've responded. You're telling them to forsake uh, Moses in the Gentile country. This is going to stir things up. So they're trying to stave off or cut off a problem before it gets any worse. So look what they advise them there in verse 23. Do this, therefore, this we say to thee. Notice that these are elders directing an apostle here. He says, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. But thou thyself also walk orderly and keep the law. Verse 25, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. And it continues, look at verse 26. Then Paul took them and the next day purifying himself with them entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So here's the situation. Here's the background. He's been traveling. He's come back. The elders have a concern and they want him to do this and we see that he obliges, right? So is Paul supporting the mosaical system when they under the law of Christ? And what are we supposed to do with that? How do we make sense of this? How do we understand what is going on? Well, we know that Paul taught thousands of Jews, or at least affected that, so that many had believed and were converted to Christ. 
Though many had become Christians, remember I spoke earlier about the things they are under, the religious authority, the, the time frame, what's going on. Paul was not going about telling the Jews to constantly forsake Moses. They apparently conclude that Paul opposed any sort of connection with the Hebrew system. Brethren, this simply is not true. Do you know how we know this? We know this because Timothy was circumcised at the order of Paul in order to prevent offending the Jews. That's Acts chapter 16 and verse 3. Paul had not opposed observing certain elements of the law, provided that observing those elements was not to seek justification. Isn't that what a lot of his letters are about? Romans, Galatians, you are not justified by the law. So we know that that is not his intent. Paul was not insensitive to his kinsmen. Matter of fact, he would have done anything for them. But that was becoming his reputation. That's what people were saying about him. James and the elders, we also need to note in our reading here, do not agree with what people are saying about Paul. Their concern is, how are we going to handle this problem? How are we going to deal with it? So here's what happens. And, and by the way, perhaps, notice I'm saying that, don't know with 100% certainty, maybe the elders themselves are also working through it in their own minds in this transition from old law to new law. And so how are you going to diffuse this situation? Isn't it wonderful to be an elder in the Lord's church? Our elders here having to deal with COVID, not trying to interject that, I'm just showing an eldership is never without dealing with situations. And so here is this example here in Acts. How many men were there that had placed themselves under a vow? Some people think it's five, but we have no record here in this account that Paul was under this vow in this section. It says that these four men were under this vow, probably a Nazarite vow, but here is what is going on. It was near that time for this ritual to be consummated in a purification ceremony. And so the elders come and tell Paul, why don't you go in there, identify yourselves with them, and be purified. That would involve paying some temple fees and purifying themselves and on it would go. This was something allowed under the old law. This would be done so that the Jews in general might see that Paul was walking orderly, that he was not what they were accusing him of and trying to establish his character as. So Paul agrees to the suggestion the following day as we read, the apostle and the four men, they go to the temple, sacrifices would be offered. The process is initiated. They go through it. This would be uh, culminated a few days later. In other words, there's several things going on here over a period of time. Not only were the four purified, but so was Paul. What does that mean? Paul probably not likely purified for the same reason. Well, then what could it possibly be? Nowhere do we have evidence that he was under this vow here. You remember Paul had been in Gentile territory. When he returned, he would have to go through a cleansing process to pacify the Jewish mind. And perhaps that is what he was doing here. Here is the problem. Why would Paul then, knowing the Mosaic law was obsolete, submit to a purification ritual? You know, some brethren would say, you know what? We're done with that. Y'all just get over it and you come up to me. Rather than trying to work through and, and defuse the situation. Others argue that the apostle was sincere in yielding to this procedure. He simply did not fully understand at this point what was going on, that the law had been done away with. The problem with that one, brethren, is Paul has already written 
about the law being done away with before this point. So that cannot be an option. Many say that Paul, in a moment of weakness, knowingly sinned and yielded to the pressure here to pacify mankind. Does that sound like the Apostle Paul to you? What do we do with that? If Paul is indicted on sin, then you know what? So are James and the elders because they are the ones that tell him to go and do this. So now you go from one person to a whole group. Even if Paul did sin, the mere recording of the transgression would not make the Bible, the Bible not of God. It would not make the Bible false or a lie. It does record the commission of sins of people. There are some that say, while it's the case that even the apostle could sin, one ought to, uh, excuse me, not that one say, if the apostle did sin, brethren, we must be very careful to say that he sinned here without explicit information here telling us that is exactly what happened. I don't know about you, but some people look at the world that way. I would rather look at it as Paul working to help the brethren and grow the church rather than to commit sin. If Paul did sin, here's perhaps the greatest evidence, why did he later, in inspired defense, that is in Bible, he used this exact situation as a defense before a government ruler. Was the Apostle Paul led by the Holy Spirit in recording Scripture to defend sin? Does that sound like the God of the Bible? Do not see how that one could be uh, an explanation as well. Some say that Paul's actions were a matter of expediency in a time period when certain elements of the mosaical system, particularly the civil, were gradually passing away. Now, perhaps no suggestion there is totally free of some difficulty. By the way, this is one of the greater challenges in the book of Acts. So someone's been studying the book of Acts, or someone wanted to be a stinker this evening. I think they're studying the book of Acts. We're going to go that route. And it's a very good question. How do we make sense of that? It is possible that Paul went through this ritual as a matter of expediency to relieve a very tense situation. Personally, I stand before you, and I'm not going to get you to heaven, but this is what I believe, and this is what I understand. This is what a lot of good brethren hold to. The apostle could have purified himself strictly in conformity to national nationalistic Judaism, with no intent whatsoever of substituting an animal for the precious sacrifice of our Lord. You have a man who was going to persecute the church in Acts chapter 9 to one who is now going with the very things that he opposed. What caused that transition? What caused that change? Some say there is no way, absolutely not, but why not? If the apostle could have Timothy circumcised as an expediency, not connected with anything as far as uh, uh, ritual with salvation, which people did, Acts 15 and verse 1, why then couldn't Paul go and utilize this process of purification, not sacrificing an animal, to help pacify the minds of the Jews that were causing problems? To offer a sacrifice redemptively at this time would have been wrong, brother. It would have been a sin. Christ has died. The blood has been shed. But there is no proof that that was Paul's intention here. So, let's wrap all this up. It should be noted that the purification did not always involve an atonement for personal sin. 
How do we know that? Well, let me give you an example. The, uh, 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 a mother was to be purified following the birth of her child, even though the act of bearing a child is not a sin, she was still required to go through the purification process. Paul's act of purification need not suggest that he was seeking personal forgiveness for some sin that was committed and he was going to accomplish it through an animal sacrifice. Clearly that was not Paul's purpose in this temple ritual. So in the absence of more conclusive information, we're not given all the details as Brother Cody was saying in one of his questions, it is unwise to accuse the Apostle Paul of compromise or sin. If one is going to mess up, if one is going to make an error in judging this situation, it is best to err on the side of respect and love for God's apostle and not trying to destroy him. That's what the bad guys want to do, so they can chip away at the Bible, causing us to then chip away at our faith. Don't let that happen. And so you can see, I, I think I got the tougher question, so I should get the brownie tonight. But uh, hopefully that did help you all and those that ask those questions. Um, often teach in school. When someone is studying, there's always going to be questions. Questions is one of the best ways to learn something because then when it's answered, you remember it. A good study of the Bible is to go and study the questions that God asks people in the Bible. There's lots of them. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 17, though, there is one question that is asked by a man who has a lot of things going for him. And there he comes up to Jesus, and this rich young ruler, as we know him, says, Good master, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Brethren, questions are not going away. They need not go away. It's a very powerful form of communication and learning. But I will say to you this evening that the most important question is the one that that rich young ruler asked. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? If you do not know the answer to that question this evening, we're about to stand up and sing, I want you to come forward, and we'll be happy to study with you and let the Bible, let God answer that question for you so you know you know assuredly what needs to be done. If you've already answered that question and you know in your own heart that you have strayed away, it's time to put that aside and to return unto your Lord. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and while we sing.